to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Joseph Leck and Ryan McCarran to discuss farm management. Joseph graduated from the Nova Scotia Agricultural College in 2009. He started sheep farming in 2012 in a rented facility where he milked sheep for two summers. 2016, he came home to take over the family dairy farm. He completed the sale of the farm last spring and is currently milking 40 cows, with 40 O's producing close to 80 market lambs a year. He crops approximately 250 acres to satisfy the farm's own demand for forage, as well as some custom work for neighbors and hay sales. Ryan is the owner of Carondale Cattle Company, Inc. with his partner, Caitlin Knox. He purchased one farm from his father three years ago and currently leases this place along with a few others. He is also running a cow-calf to backgrounding operation with cash crop grain sales. Ryan graduated from the AC in 2009. Uh, so welcome back. And what about the animal side? What are you doing to track your productivity on the sheep and the on the dairy side? With sheep, again, it's a spreadsheet. I keep track of uh, how many lambs per you and um, whether the lambs make it. I'm not to the point yet of trying to figure out how many like pounds of lamb per you that she makes. My biggest thing is of uh, just working on genetics to keep ewes that are low maintenance. And so I'm looking to push a lambing average to about 2.25 or 2.5. Currently, I'm at a 2.1. Um, I started with a 1.7, so I'm definitely moving in the right direction. And I've managed to call off a bunch of the problem use. And so I only deal with maybe one lambing issue a year on average. My bread and butter is milking cows. And in order for the sheep to work, they have to be low maintenance and they got to be in a slower season. So they lamb in the spring when it's warm at night. I don't have to deal with uh, freezing lambs or frozen ice buckets or anything like that. I have AC students working in the summer. It gives them something to do in the spring. Uh, if I lamb them in May, I'm shipping them uh, for the most part in January. Not because January is an ideal month to ship a lamb from a lamb's point of view, but it's more of an ideal month for me to ship a lamb because the prices fall usually from September to about Christmas. January, they start to come back around. I have enough things to do to keep me busy through the fall because all my help goes back to school in September. And so then I got to finish up cropping, spread some manure and do a few odds and ends, try to buckle the barn down for the winter and stuff like that. And so January is just when I can ship them, uh, when I have time to actually ship them. So uh, it seems to work out to grow them a little bit slower. That way I can maximize my forage I, where I have to buy in all my grain. Then uh, feeding them a little more forage and a little less grain just makes sense to me. We plan on doing a bunch more um, additions to our pastures. So basically I can pull first and second cut off a bunch of fields and then pasture a third cut. I should be able to stockpile the feed. So basically the grass is going to stop growing by say the end of September, first part of October. And so if I can stockpile this grass, then I should be able to graze sheep clean through till Christmas. The nice part about sheep is they're a lot lighter on the fields and so they don't tear it all to pieces the same way cattle do. And so you can get them out a little bit sooner in the spring, keep them a little bit later in the fall. It seems to make a difference. With the uh, dairy cows, I have them on test uh, through uh, Lactonet and we keep track of milk production and components and stuff like that. I always look at uh, butterfat per cow. 
um, as opposed to just volume. Because I mean, if they're making a real high percentage butter fat and they make a little less volume, well, they're, they're actually more efficient than something that's making uh, high volume and lower butter fat. You just kind of got to look at the big picture and how everything all fits together. And the biggest thing by having the, the sheep and the cows together is it allowed me to maximize my equipment use. And that's the reason why I do some custom work as well, just trying to make equipment cash flow. So both of you seem quite ruthless on the dam side, right? You've both said that uh, whether it's a yo or a cow, they have to be productive. There's no freeloaders. On the sire genetic side, uh, what are you looking for in either uh, your bull selection, whether it's a beef or a dairy bull or that ram selection? Uh, what type of daddy are you looking for there, if any? If I'm looking at a bull that I'm looking for traits like feet and legs, milk, any of that stuff's going to go. Like we're primarily Angus at one farm and then we've got Lemos and Semmentals at the other farm. And then we just try to like build on them. Like if I'm looking at, say, if I know they've got good genetics like the Lemos, I'll either add another Lemo to them or I will. I mean, I like having Angus base herds. I just like that. Get good marbling, good quality. But I don't like really like any one breed of beef cows. I just like if they're black and they're black lemos, I'm like sweet. If they're black semitals, I'm like sweet. If they're whatever, I, I like good cattle. Like if they just got to work and make me money, then that's good. Like and I like crossbreeding. It just takes away so much other problems. And you get hybrid vigor. You don't get like a lot of the feet problems or health problems. We do have a few purebreds. That's Caitlin's deal. I don't do registrations ever since I quit dairy farming. So. uh I don't like getting like an attachment to the cows. Like when you go with purebred, you give them a name and then it's like, you're, you're making excuses for them to stay. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Like, you know, I don't care how nice she looks. She'll look good on, in a freezer too. So when I look at animals, I'm kind of looking for feet and legs and functionality. I want them walking and I want them doing everything on themselves. Like if I don't have to trim them, that is awesome. Like I don't like those cows. If I'm taking them in a couple of times, cause they need to get trimmed. I'm like, then I'll like, I start looking at her and saying, what are you even doing with this outfit? Feet and legs are a big important because that's taking them everywhere. So they got to walk country here. They're going to have to go out to pasture. So that's that's a big must. And then like milk because, you know, the dams need milk to produce good calves. And then it's usually carcass characteristics. So when I'm at a bull sale, yeah, they got those two things. Then I'm looking for animals that got like, you know, good yearling weights. They got big rib eyes, got good marbling scores. Like those are the big things. So those are going to like, if I am going to finish, that's what's going to make me money. Like you can have a... A real growthy animal or you keep putting fat on a beef cow but then if you go in there and it gets like a yield grade four or five then you're just getting discounted because it's a fat animal but then if you go in there and your ribeye is like it's like a 14 square inch versus a 16 square inch you know that's money in the bank you're getting a high score you're getting a higher cutout and you're getting exactly what they want and then it's just i still want to make great so that's where i kind of like uh the angus lemos and the only reason why i really like the angus lemos is that they usually come out like straight red and straight black it keeps our herds looking uniform and good like, I like to have a couple, like, uniform-looking herds. It just looks neat. That's just a personal preference. We've had Charlays and Silvers on the Anguses, and they've done just as well, too. And then big carcasses, and, like, love them, too. Good genetics. I don't care what it is. I like it. When we bought a couple herds, they came with some junk calves at the time. We shipped them off, and they got junk price. Ever since we got rid of that junk, and we bred with good bulls, with good genetics, and they come in, we put them on feed, even when we're backgrounding them. They thicken up, and, like, I mean... You're eight months, 10 months. You just see them just coming on like freight trains. They go to the sales and they do well. So like people see that poor genetics, they see poor results and they're like, they're not going to pay good money for that because it's going to end up costing them more money down the rail. Like you want feed conversion, you want pounds per day for gain, big ribeye, just pretty much all around. 
if you're a purebred, you might be like, oh, I'm looking for just good genetics and it's an outcross and this, this, and that. But for me, it's like, it's got to be, if I got a bull and he goes down the list and he's good all across everything, I'm like, that's mine. I don't want to think about it. I just want somebody else to do the work for me. And then I just breed that. And it's like, okay. Yeah. When I pick out a uh, Holstein bulls or Jersey bulls, um, basically everything's purebred, everything's classified. So it basically lays out all my functional traits of the animal. And it also lays out all the issues with the animal. So when I'm looking for bulls, I'm trying to find, like, if I have a cow that's um, bad for, like, rear leg rear view, then I want a bull that is uh, good for rear legs rear view. So hopefully you end up with something kind of in between and you're moving your genetics in the right direction. The theory I was told by my father when you're breeding purebred cattle is if you're making the perfect cow, then she should be a more functional cow. The other thing is, if she's not functional, then I don't keep her. So then you kind of have to have a balance, right? If you're breeding for something, then you should be kind of calling for the extreme on the other end. You know, you're just trying to get a well-balanced cow. The biggest thing I'm pushing for in the Holsteins is chest width, chest depth. I want more capacity, both for holding feed and holding a calf. And that should allow her to uh, make a little more milk if she can eat a little more feed. With the sheep, it depends what I'm trying to do. If I'm trying to breed replacements, then I'm looking for a more maternal ram who's going to help lambing percentage, who's going to help longevity, who's got, you know, correct feet and legs and everything like that. If you're looking for a terminal sire, then basically I'm just looking for something that has weight gain and a good uh, dress out percentage and something that's not terrible for functionality. But I mean, really lambs are only going to live eight months so you know if the feet and legs aren't the best it's not the end of the world but they have to be good enough to get them through those first six or eight months here are upcoming events brought to you by dalhousie university faculty of agriculture dalhousie's faculty of agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers our students learn to solve real world problems in a friendly hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study Dow researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters, or designing smarter Christmas trees, Dow Agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more. Visit dow.ca slash agriculture. The 2022 Nova Scotia Ministers Conference for Agriculture webinar series is occurring February 16th, April 6th. For the agenda and speaker lineup or to register, please visit perennia.ca forward slash agriconference. The Nova Scotia Cattle Producers Annual Meeting will be held virtually on March 15th. Please register in advance at nscattle.ca. The Nova Scotia Cattle Producers are introducing an on-farm preconditioning pilot project in mid-2022 where cattle preconditioning services will be available to members on farm, please visit nscattle.ca forward slash preconditioning for more information. And upcoming feeder sale dates, regular feeder sales occur every second Tuesday throughout the winter with the next occurring March 17th. Please check atlanticstockyards.com for a full sale schedule. The Ballamore Farms Limited Thickness Cells Bull and Heifer Sale will be held March 19th at Ballamore Farm in Great Village. For more information, visit ballamorefarmltd.com or their Facebook page. The 49th Annual Maritime Beef Testing Society Breeding Stock Sale will happen on April 2nd online via DLMS. Visit maritimebeeftteststation.ca for additional information. In programs, the Nova Scotia Cattle Producers have two programs available for 2022. 
the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program, the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca forward slash programs. There are many Nova Scotia programs available for 2022 through the Department of Agriculture. For a complete list of programs, as well as applications and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. So Ryan, a little earlier on, you alluded to, uh, you know, keeping the bankers happy. And one of the things as an egg economist, I, I like to focus on the kind of the farm management side of the whole thing, you know, so how are you tracking your financial performance and, and meeting those goals of, of your banker and yourself and Caitlin? Um, and then also, if you're using any uh, business risk management tools or, or other risk management tools uh, in your operation. One of the biggest metrics we use there is that we've got the income statement and we've got the expense statement, and one's got to be above the other to make a banker happy. That's the general nuts and bolts of it. I mean, you can do everything else and, and like take everything else down, but like when it all comes down to it, they don't really care about a lot of the on-farm stuff. Like they they will when they start like doing a like more in-depth to see if you're doing a good job and what's going on. But like if we had a bad year our first year and we walked in there and say like, well, we kept 40 steers back, we got you know. 20 30 heifers we have increased our herd to this we've got x amount of grain in the tanks they're like do not care put it through an audited income statement and then i'll believe it and that's basically how it is i mean we even talked to a bank last year we had the grain we had the uh, steers and we were like you know another two months to get to get going on a whole finished cycle and we would have made a lot more money and you couldn't get anybody to play, play ball. It's like, you know, come into the barn. I will show you the steers. You can do whatever you want. But see, like, they got to know and they have to have a backed up financial statement that's saying, like, first of all, you are paying back the money and the loans that you first took back now, which we were. And then the next one, they want to see that you're making money going forward. Ideally, they always want like three good years in a row before they start saying, okay, yeah, let's get serious about your, your next rules and expansions. Risk management, what we do is, uh, I mean, we do a little bit more financial stuff. Like we will take back stuff. If we think it's not working, we'll look at it and say like, are we like a couple of years ago, like winters here are not that soft. So we like stopped taking winter wheat out of the rotation. Not that we wouldn't try it again, but at our stage in our business, we said it wasn't really worth us to take a risk on these winters. Cause like we're getting a lot more freezing rain up here. A lot more winter kill was coming out. And it's just like a lot of work and time and money that you put out to not get that crop coming for you. So like when we do have something that's not working, we We'll take an assessment and say like, hey, we're putting this money in there. It's not giving us a return. Let's take that out. And then like we just use simply accounting. So like we can run programs, you can run ratios and all that stuff there. But like in our experience, banks just want to see you in the black and then they want to see that's growing, that your business is going in the right direction or you're reducing your costs and making yourself more efficient. A combination of those two things. For risk management, we've always generally applied in crop insurance and we are enrolled in agri-stability. We have actually done all right with that now. Like for the first couple of years, we're like, like what, what's going on? Like how bad does it have to get before you get like a, any assistance? But then it, it actually ended up getting something. Like mind you, it was two years later, so there could be some reforms. Because, you know, if we were not in our situation, you'd be pretty hard pressed. Wait until year five before you start getting something that happened in your year one. Like we already made critical changes to how we structured our business before we even knew uh, there would be any kind of a, a payment come from that. So... But it was worth it. I mean, it is a pain in the ass, agri-stability. I mean, they will call you up multiple times, asking you questions. 
that you'll be kind of shaking your head at and saying like, do these people even know what they are doing? And that's like not a dig. They're, they probably see so many different operations. But anyways, it still is worth it. It's risk management there. I mean, like I heard someone say, so you got to be a part of it if you want to change it. Like you got to be inside of it. You have to know or go through the experiences before you can actually make critical assessments. You can't just kind of complain that agri stability or risk management doesn't work. I mean, yeah, okay, well, you get enrolled in it. Then you'll know why it doesn't work. Then you can actually make an educated decision about like, hey, you guys could improve this, streamline this. If something happens and there is a claim that's going to be worth to a farmer because his crop got like frosted out or they like, you know, had a bad calf season because it was like a snowstorms or whatever. And they have serious losses. It just you want to make sure that that's coming in a more efficient time manner and having that higher reference margin. Because, you know, like it's I think it was at 70 percent there now. So, I mean, that's a 30 percent hit on your income before you get a payout. So it's whatever. I mean, that's just what it is. So, but once you're enrolled in it, you'll know why it needs to be reformed. And then you can actually make decisions. It's not just easy to say, like, just not be a part of it. And the other thing that is nice about once you are enrolled in that program, you do get like from our side, being with grain and cattle and and in the whole like totally free market side of it, you do get access to the advanced payment programs. So that is another access, especially when you're starting out. And if you're having trouble getting financing from banks, it's another way then as long as you're partaking in the risk management of crop insurance and stuff there, it frees up another avenue for you to get some financing and cash flow so that while you're waiting for that first cycle of cash to come through, you can enroll in this program, get yourself some financing. So then you're not like, you know, maxing out a credit card and doing that other stuff. And I mean, it's a small price to go through all that hassle. I mean, that's really the only reason why we initially got into it was the access to capital that was available through the um, APP program. So then it was just a benefit. Then once we're enrolled in it, once we got through that initial phase, then we just said, okay, let's just go through it. I mean, I can talk a lot about how bad the guys are, but I mean, they will walk you through it. They eventually get to it. They'll keep calling you up. They won't make a decision or like go unilaterally and say, okay, we think this. They'll call you up multiple times. So when you really look at that, it's probably better to get like a couple annoying phone calls and be like, does that guy know what he's talking about? Than him just being like some guy at CRA being like, we're going to audit you and we don't care what you say. So like, I'd rather have it the way it is than have somebody from Revenue Canada try and take my money. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever money I have. (laughs) Joseph, how about you? uh, And probably a little bit different for you being on the supply management side and on the sheep side. Probably cash flow looks a little bit different than marketing one or two times a year. So maybe how do you manage financial success? And then maybe comment a little bit about even how the semi-monthly Gary check helps you kind of manage some of the costs on the sheep side. Yeah, you're kind of asking the wrong person here because banks like me because I have dairy quota. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, uh, your equity is about twice what your farm can cash flow. So when it comes down to uh, as far as getting a loan secured, they don't really think twice about it. In saying that, I did go through FCC for all my financing. Um, basically it was between them and Farm Loan Board uh, for the sole purpose that it's government-backed and I figured their tolerance to risk and uh, their willingness to bail me out of trouble would probably be higher than uh, a more traditional lending institute. I knew when I took over the first five years were going to be rough. They have been. There does seem to be light at the end of the tunnel. Mostly I use the dairy cows to uh, cash flow things and then basically the uh, sheep uh, check the custom work and the hay sales uh, would pay for your, your big bills such as um, fertilizer and uh, all your equipment costs through the summer so you'll end up racking up some 
repair bills and stuff like that. So anyways, things kind of work out. Basically, by adding the sheep and the hay sales, it's added an extra two months worth of uh, milk checks onto the farm revenue. And so it's a way to expand uh, using all the current assets that I have. Part of what was appealing to me about the farm was it was not maxed out. There is room to milk a couple extra cows in the barn. There is room to get more milk out of the cows. And so I should be able to expand a fair bit quota-wise and not have to milk any more cows. Uh, same with the sheep. There was an abandoned building here. So I moved the sheep in. It holds 40 sheep. So I got 40 years. Uh, when I looked at all my cropping, I said, basically, uh, I need 100 horsepower tractors in order to move bales and pull a baler. Therefore, you use a 100 horsepower tractor to pull your mower. So then you try to uh, size everything up, start looking at things, and then basically said, all right, if I'm running a 10-foot mower and a rotor shop round baler, and then a uh, 10-foot mower still works on a four-basket tether. It also works on a 13-foot rake, which is still a single-basket rake. If you start jumping to a six or eight basket tether, it's uh, a fair bit bigger, uh, a fair bit more money as well. Then I got to start upgrading tractor sizes too. And so it doesn't work. So basically I said, all right, if I get a 10 foot mower and a round baler, basically what can I cover for land? And so I started basically doing spreadsheets on what I can cover. So it worked out on covering 250 acres is what I need to do. So I put all my costs in, crunched it all out, said basically, all right, it will cash flow in five years. And I compared my per acre cost to what the uh, custom guys are charging. And so if I was going to hire somebody to come in and chop silage for the whole place, I'm about $10 an acre more to do it myself. Now, if I do all that work myself, I hire in people, which also means I have help in the barn. If I was going to hire in a custom guy to come in and do everything for me, then I'm basically just chained to the barn. And all I do is barn chores seven days a week. And as much as I like milking cows, it's just too hard on the body to be on concrete that long and never have a break. The other thing is there's diversity to it. Uh, what I really like about selling hay is you get to set the price. When you're dealing with dairy cattle, somebody else sets the price for you. And the only way to make more money is to increase efficiencies. And so then you're looking at payback periods and everything like that. Now with the hay, you can say, all right, well, these are the efficiencies that I have. Can I kind of, you know, take advantage of those or, um, you know, cut some costs here. But at the end of the day, if you have to, you can just put your price of hay up 50 cents a bale or, you know, a dollar a bale and away you go. You get a little more revenue. The other thing is with the dairy industry, it's these are the standards for milk that you have to meet and you don't get paid any extra for exceeding it. When you're making square bale hay, there's the average bale of hay, there's a superior bale of hay, and then there's also a poor quality. And if you can find a customer base that actually appreciates that, then you can get a little bit more money. And if you make a superior product, you can actually get paid for it. So it's nice to get that premium. Same with the, the lambs. Um, you know, if you grow a superior lamb, then you should get paid a little bit better for it. And if you can find the right markets, you can. And so it's really nice having, I'm going to say, a supply managed commodity because you have the security behind that and uh you know you'll always have market access but what i don't like about it is they're basically saying you have to make so much milk and then they kind of tell you how much they're going to pay you for it after with the hay and the lambs it's uh set up that you know you have some control over it lamb selling lambs a little more of a, a fixed thing because most slaughterhouses are saying listen i'm willing to pay this for it and you don't really negotiate a lot with them. But if you can sell some live lambs or whatever, you might be able to do a little bit better. So basically the way I kind of measure success is I seem to be able to do more work here with the same amount of labor. 
So my biggest thing is I'm trying to cut labor costs by automating things, mostly because when I looked around, I could automate things cheaper than I could actually pay the labor, which is why I automated my round bale feeding system in the barn, uh, saving an hour a day. Payback period on that was uh, about two and a half years. If I start looking at a round bale feeder and computerized grain feeder and then compare it to a TMR mixer, it's basically going to cost me the same amount of money to buy both. And don't get me wrong, TMR mixer will probably get me more milk per cow, but it's going to add 20 minutes on my day for feeding as opposed to save me an hour a day. So my labor savings is going to pay my equipment costs for feeding round bale silage off a round bale feeder and a computerized grain feeder as opposed to I need a significant amount more milk in order to cover that extra 20 minutes running a TMR mixer. And I don't so, grow corn silage yeah. and I don't grow my own grains. So trying to utilize that stuff in a TMR mixer doesn't make sense for me. As far as the bank's concerned, FCC has been really good about understanding that inventory is growing, the farm's expanding, they're seeing more revenue. Uh, we had a farm succession plan completed, I guess, kind of in the middle of things, which kind of made the financials look a little wonky, but we're still cash flowing. Although the bottom number isn't as black as I would like it to be, we're still making headway and everybody still seems to be happy and they haven't got mad at me yet. So we're just going to keep rolling with it. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the week ended February 25th, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.24 per kilogram, up 14.1 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was up 14.1 cents from last week to a price of 215 per kilogram. In Quebec, base price was 227 per kilogram, up 19.5 cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was $2.83 on the rail. In Ontario, live steers sold for $1.63, moving down three cents from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was $2.91, up two cents from last week. Call cattle Atlantic Stockyard sold for 93 cents, downward change of 26 cents from last week, while rail price at Atlantic Beef Products was flat at $1.61. Calls in Ontario had averaged 81 cents, up one cent from the prior week, and were flat in Quebec at 76 cents. Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $104, up $9. And good dairy beef bob calves averaged $194, up $23 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up 13 cents to a price of $1.94 per pound. And calves in Quebec were $1.94, an increase of 39 cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumber Lamb is $14 per kilogram and mutton sits at $6.50 per kilogram. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average 4.28 per pound at 59 pounds, ranging from 3.55 to 4.75. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they average 3.35 per pound at 69 pounds, and lambs over 95 pounds average 3.28 at 102 pounds. In Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs average 4.17 per pound at 73 pounds, ranging from 3.25 to 4.50. And ewes in Ontario averaged 207 at 146 pounds and ranged from a dollar to 275. Make sure you check your association websites for additional pricing information. 
So one of the things I, I just I'd like to talk to you guys real quickly about just before we wrap up here uh, is kind of that whole hay market situation and what feed is actually worth. And, you know, I get calls here to the office almost on a daily basis, plus some of my horse friends that call me outside of work and go, what's hay worth? And then they'll say, well, it's $70 a bale and it's a four by five bale. But I rarely hear people talk about bale weight and feed quality. Right. They think that every four by four or four by five bale is created equally. And both of you seem to have it figured out that you're either buying or selling based on quality. Maybe some comments around that and and the importance of that, rather than just saying, you know, all bales are created equal. There should be at least a division in low, medium and, and high quality feed. Basically, I look at it is it's uh, what's your requirement on the farm? So if you're looking at uh, trying to get production out of an animal like making milk or trying to get the animal to grow, then you need good quality forage to do that. But if you're looking at uh, maintenance on an animal, it's really not doing much. And I'll use my wife's horses as an example. She won't listen to this podcast. So it's safe to talk about them. I feed them some really poor stuff, right? That, you know, I think it's just absolutely terrible. But they're still fat. So, you know, they're getting all the nutrients that they require, right? And so, you know, a horse is going to need 10, 12 protein to kind of maintain what it's doing but you know dairy cattle's looking at like 17 percent protein in order to get it to make milk but then you're looking at you know when you grow some lambs or some uh, heifers or something you you want that a little bit lower in that 13 to 15 range and so basically i test all my forage and then kind of put it to the the proper spot and then if i have forage that's left over that's the stuff that i try to sell but the other thing is i try to match what i'm selling to who i'm selling it to because the last thing I want, you know, I've forced people coming in and buying second cut, hey, at, you know, 15%. I said, listen, you know, you can't be pounding the grain to that horse because the thing's going to get too fat or you're going to take the feet off of it or something like that, right? And so they've got to know what they're buying. And I hear everybody says, oh, well, good forage costs, you know, a whole bunch more money to grow. And it's like, you know, it costs a whole bunch of money to fix your old rundown field up. But once it's up and going, it's not so bad to maintain it. Your maintenance costs aren't huge. It's the original fixing up from the last 20 years of neglect. And then if you start looking at your increase in yields, then yeah, you've spent a little more per acre, but you're also getting more per acre. So, you know, a good feed costs a little bit more than bad feed, but not significant. Prime example is I'm using some of the neighbor's fields in the past and, you know, I'm getting three round bales the acre off of it, right? Well, your fertilizer bill and your equipment costs are both costing you somewhere around hundred bucks an acre. And when I come here and do my fields, I'm getting six bales to the acre. So, you know, although I've spent more time with tillage or whatever, or more money on fertilizer or whatever, you've uh, decreased your equipment cost per bale. Uh, although you've increased your fertility bill per bale, it uh, still works out in the same. So, yeah, when you're going to sell it, there's not a huge difference in price. And so, you know, you're seeing you're paying an awful lot for the poor quality stuff, but it costs them almost the same amount of money to make it. But to me, it's the feed value where the difference is, is when you go to buy it, right? And uh, a buddy of mine, he's bought hay for years, and uh, he was always buying in poor stuff, hay, And uh, he was too cheap to buy the good stuff, and he'll admit it. Anyways, he started getting some of my second cut hay. He started bartering because I needed somebody to run a baler for me. So anyways, he's absolutely amazed how well his goats look now. And it's just because they've finally been fed well and no matter how much grain you pour in front of an animal it it will never substitute good forage 
Yep. No, I agree with a lot of that. We have a part of our program too, since we came home, we have a horse breeding and training program on the side. So we do have horses and we primarily make like our, when we make our dry hay, it's either going to be like a dry beef cow hay or, I mean, even then it's mostly just going for horses unless we need like something to mix in. Like that's one thing I did like about TMR mixture is that like, if you had poor feed, like this year, we were able to stretch out some feed. We did some, we had like an under seeded field of wheat straw with alfalfa had a lot of greenness that came up with it, mostly straw. Then we had some hot second cut and we we're feeding like some lactating beef cows that are coming to the end of their rotation. We we're able to kind of blend that down. So these cows were getting like a something that they didn't need at that stage. And they're like, they, we wanted them to have still good feed, still good nutrition. But like if you eat second cut to like a beef cow and it's dry, it just goes like straight through them. And then you're just kind of wasting that energy. So we tried to take maybe a bale of hay. That's what I did like about the mixture that you could blend that feed down and allow that feed to stay in them and you can kind of maximize. I mean, you could dump, we were dumping straw bales in there, bust that up into with another bale. They eat it up and not waste one bit. And it worked really well. That is one thing I'd like about a TMR mixture. Um, for the hay, like we have brood mares and like they will need a little bit, like a couple more percent when they come on to milk. And if you have good feed, like, I mean, a couple of years ago, we made our first cut hay a little bit earlier than we did. And the horses that got it, that weren't milking or weren't like hard maintenance horses or like really easy keepers. I mean, their manure was going soft. Like a, I think it was like a dairy cow coming in there and that we had to start find some older stuff just to blend it down to them so that they weren't, but like the brood mares that were milking, I mean, they look great. They weren't getting ribby. They weren't doing that. They had good feed. The horses that were in training or getting worked hard, they were like looking awesome, cut their grain back and they were doing really well. We had an old boarder there was like a hard keeper and he was like putting on weight and cut his feed back. So like having good quality hay, it's a hard thing to price, but I agree with like the cost of it is exactly what Joseph said. It's like those costs are pretty much going to be the same. And I agree with the fertility side of it. Like when you have good fields up, it makes everything easier. I mean, that's where it starts with the fertility in the field. You get more bales per acre. That's just like just hundred percent, just total agreement on that. We stopped selling a lot of feed, like we were selling a lot of hay. And then like the last couple of years we're growing our cattle herd. So we kind of just stopped selling hay. We grow our commodities and we're just kind of putting more stuff on farm. And now we're kind of with the mindset that if we have extra stuff, we keep it in reserve now. And if we do, because we're kind of always trying to keep growing our cow herd, like we kind of want to keep growing aggressively. So as we can keep pushing our numbers up, up and up and up whether it be horses and the cattle and the, and the, we're planning to keep more fed cattle. So, I mean, once we have an original run, if we get up to 200 cows and if we're keeping those to finish, you know, there could be 600 head floating around at any one time on the farm. So any feed, if we start getting surplus, we want to keep adding on to that. We don't want to be trying to sell that and be out of that business. If we have extra feed, we do empty our barns out in the summertime. So then we do have the option then to buy in feeders and put them inside the barn to utilize the barn while the cows are gone out to pasture. And then that's what we'll look at doing, especially if we can get them there if they're going, like if it's early, if it's coming in early May and people are short on feed and we have the feed, I can say maybe I can get a deal on that. On some feeders that might go through the sale cheaper because no one really wants to buy that. Pastures aren't really coming on there. And if you can get in there, buy some lights that no one really wants, then, you know, you can flip them out to a sale later on in the fall whenever your calves come into the barn. So that's kind of where we're looking at now for us and we kind of just got out of selling the hay racket we're not saying that we won't go back into it like we have put more acres back down to grass this last couple of years but just want to make sure because we were, were short on feed two years ago so now we're kind of want to always make sure we got a good barrier coming into march then we can start looking at selling feed kind of like storing it too the hay like let everyone else who's selling it then if it gets tight then you can add the premium onto it as because you've stored it longer if we if we get back to selling hay again 
Well, guys, I, I've definitely appreciated this conversation today, and I, I picked up a couple of things here that I think we'll talk about on a, another episode in the future. Uh, definitely want to take uh, this chance to thank you for both being with us today, and I'm sure we'll chat again. Uh, if not on a podcast, I'm sure we'll chat offline at some point. So thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes. <laughs>